You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, in turning from Acts chapter 5 to Acts chapter 6, we continue to remember that the gospel is, as Luke records it in the book of Acts, advancing throughout the world, yet is still at this moment, localized to Jerusalem. The various interactions that the church had with the religious establishment there in Jerusalem was part of Israel as a nation continuing down its tragic path of rejecting Jesus as its Messiah. Now, in chapter 6, we turn our attention afresh to the organization of the church, and then some of that organization, one of the key members of it, will actually preach boldly and powerfully to that same religious establishment who had become very firm in their rejection of Christ Jesus as their Christ or as their Messiah. Uh, But before we see that, we see in chapter 6 the church uh, organizing. So, We read it in verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, of course, in chapter 5, there was the problem of hypocrisy instituted by Ananias and Sapphira. And, of course, God dealt swiftly with that hypocrisy. But here we see an additional problem in the early church. There were some in the church who were called Hellenists. Now, these were still Jewish people by race, but their life and custom was more Grecian. They were Grecian Jews. They couldn't speak Aramaic, uh, the native tongue of the Jews living there in Israel at the time, And many of them were probably raised outside of the land and were bilingual, speaking Greek and then whatever the native tongue was from the place that they had come from. And even though they were Jewish by race, there was still still a strain there culturally, a, a racial kind of strain brought into the early church. And apparently in the daily distribution of funds, that the church would give to the widows that it was supporting at that time, the Hellenist or Grecian living Jews felt that their widows were being neglected in that daily distribution. It doesn't say in the conflict whether they were right or whether they were wrong, whether they were correct or incorrect, but that was their concern. They were frustrated with being neglected in the daily distribution. And it says in verse 2, and the 12, so now we have the response of the apostles. It says that they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So here the 12 gather together, and we can only assume that Matthias is one of the 12. You might remember him from Acts chapter 1, a replacement of sorts for Judas, who had of course, disqualified himself and then hung himself. 
And so the 12, they gather together and they get there with a full number of the disciples and they tell them something that almost at first glance sounds like it doesn't fit within New Testament uh, Christ-likeness. They say, we should not give up. In fact, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And it's very likely that there were actually tables where food and money would be distributed. And these disciples say, or the apostles say, it's not right for us to do this. We have to actually leave the word of God in order to conduct the ministry of serving tables. And that is not right. Now, of course, the reason that this might strike us as odd is because Jesus taught the disciples and by extension taught us that we want to live lives of servanthood. Jesus said things like this to them, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He taught them to take the low place. He taught them to take off their garments of privilege, as he had done in stepping out of heaven, and to take a servant perspective here on earth. So it seems like a daily distribution of money and food would be a perfect opportunity for those who wanted to become Christ-like to be Christ-like in lowering themselves for the cares and the, and the concerns of others. And so here, what we're learning is that for the disciples, it wasn't that they were unwilling as, as apostles to serve these tables. They'd already demonstrated that they were very willing to do so. It's that they had come to a fuller definition of what servanthood would look like for them. And for them to best serve the church, they should not have been seated at those tables uh, serving food and distributing money. They should have been standing and speaking the word of God because in their unique roles as apostles, uh, they were uniquely called and qualified to establish doctrine there uh, for the early church, which, of course, is doctrine that you and I are connected to even today. And so this helps us understand that we must understand who we are in Christ, who God has made us to be, and what servanthood would best look like for us. Of course, not in any way trying to excuse ourselves from the difficult tasks of servanthood, but doing the best and the right tasks for what servanthood looks like coming from our own lives. And so they go on by saying, therefore, brothers, verse three, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, to reiterate and double down, they say, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this is just such a beautiful balance of ministry life to me. They had the material realm, the daily distribution, the giving of food and money, but they also had the spiritual ministry, the teaching of the word of God. And the apostles said, look, we have to give ourselves to it. We have to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they had the people choose seven men of good reputation. Now, 
most people think that this is at least the infant beginnings of the role of deacons inside of the church. This doesn't seem to be uh, yet a full-fledged operation of the role of deacons, but a more Jewish kind of response and, you know, at that early stage in the church. But, you know, the idea of serving. And that's what this means, you know, seven men who will, you know, serve the church. And when they talked about serving tables, uh, it's a word that uh, is also a word that you would get the word deacons from. Now, in the Bible, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 13, gives us a great outline for what deacons in the local church should look like and should be. And the bottom line of it is that they are mature believers, and but that their focus seems to be upon physical matters within the church. So, I like to say that deacons are spiritual men or, you know, some see room for women to serve in a deacon role in a church. So you'd say spiritual people who are taking care of physical matters um, in the church. So I know sometimes we get in our minds, you know, a deacon and we think of um, maybe somebody who's manning the door or uh, is voting on certain things within the church or it sits on a board of directors for a local church or something like that. But really, I think it's a broader definition in that it's these are spiritual people who are taking care of physical matters in the church. And sometimes those physical matters are very hands-on, you know, ministering to people directly. And sometimes the spiritual uh, or physical matters are, you know, handling money, um, you know, making financial decisions, things like that. And so the apostles pull back and say, you need to choose people to operate in that way. And, and what they said, verse 5, please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, every one of these names uh, of this list of seven, these are all Greek names, uh, suggesting that they also, like the Hellenists, were Greek living Jews. So this would have been a very uh, generous kind of decision that the church made to make sure that nobody would be feel, feel left out, that, that everybody would be taken care of uh, perfectly. Now, like Luke often does in his account here in the book of Acts, he will prepare the reader for a future, longer, more robust story about a particular character by introducing them to us in a very light way earlier in the book. So he'll do that with Saul, uh, and who will become Paul. He'll introduce him at different moments. And then here he does it with Stephen and with Philip. He mentions both of these characters, and they will become the centerpiece uh, of, from a human standpoint, of Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. So they lay their hands on them, uh, which symbolize the extension of their authority upon these deacons, and they began to operate in that ministry. As a result, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, before moving on from this, I, I wanted to show two things. Number one, notice how when the church was you know, properly organized and the apostles were doing things only apostles could do and deacons were doing things only deacons could do and everyone was taking their role, the word of God continued to increase. So the church was operating well and had become fruitful because people were willing to serve in their appointed roles. But then also, I think it's important to see that in these deacons, what you have are men who were faithful in small things, and God would open doors for them. And this we'll see in the life of Stephen and also in Philip, but hopefully we'll see this also in our own lives, that as we serve the Lord faithfully in small things, he opens up more doors for us, more opportunities uh, in our lives. Now it says in verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. So now we're turning to the eventual story of Paul. And Stephen is critical to Paul's story because Paul will be there when Stephen preaches to the religious leaders and ultimately the religious leaders will stone Stephen to death. So he's doing great wonders and signs among the people, which is very fascinating because Stephen is not an apostle, but he's doing things that the apostles previously had been doing. So here we learn that those miraculous works weren't only for the apostles, but also for these deacons there in the early church. And as he's preaching to all these different groups there in the synagogue, the, the religious leaders from various synagogues, uh, it says that the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking could not be withstood by the listeners. Then, verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So much like those who complained against Jesus, uh, they charged Stephen also with blasphemy. Now, they brought these false witnesses against Stephen, but they were, you know, saying part truth. They weren't necessarily outright lying, but they were taking words that Stephen had spoken and twisted them. You know, that he's speaking against the holy place and the law. And, you know, that was their interpretation of what Stephen had done. But as he's preaching in the gospel, he's forced to announce that God is not there in that temple, but that God is found by his spirit in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Messiah, the Old Testament prophets had said would come. And in announcing that, he was announcing that the law of God had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that every man was guilty before God because he was a lawbreaker, 
but that Christ had come and, and fulfilled the law and that if they believed in him, then the righteousness of Jesus would be imputed into their account. And as he preached that, they took it as words against the holy place and words against the law, and they saw his face, fascinating phrase there in verse 15, like an angel, like the face of an angel. Luke probably wants us to understand that Stephen, being filled with the Spirit, possessed a genuine spiritual radiance upon his life, and that God was you know, doing something inwardly that was visible to them outwardly. So in chapter 7, the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? And Stephen said. Now what follows that statement and Stephen said is most of Acts chapter 7, which is very long. It's the longest recorded spoken message in the book of Acts. Not that other messages weren't longer. It's just that, you know, as Luke recorded them, he's recording the highlights. Um, and so it's likely that these messages weren't actually, you know, four or five minutes in length. That's how long it takes us to read many of these messages. The messages were likely much longer, but he's giving a condensed version to fit within the scroll of the book of Acts. And this message that Stephen is about to give is an overview of Israel's history and a vindication of Christianity. And there are some ideas in it that we'll point out as we move through it, touching on it briefly. And the big ideas seem to be that there is, number one, progress and change in God's program. You know, they went from Abraham to the promised land, from patriarchs to Egypt, to Moses' deliverance, to the building of the tabernacle, to the construction of the temple. And so part of what Stephen is going to say is, hey, if nothing else was permanent, you know, the time in Egypt or the Exodus or the tabernacle, then why would the law and the temple be permanent? You know, why wouldn't they be fulfilled and, and a new era enter in? But then beyond that, he's also going to show that God's blessings were not limited to Israel's land and the temple area. We'll find Abraham being blessed in Mesopotamia and Joseph with Pharaoh, Moses and Midian, the law being given in the desert and the temple actually being originally in heaven, that that's the real temple and that anything on earth is just a model of that. And then also we're going to see that Israel is filled with a past history of opposition to God's plans and by extension, God's men. And that really is the main point of all of this, that Abraham would wait in Haran and, and resist obeying God initially. Joseph would be sold by his brothers. Moses would be rejected by the Israelites. And Israel would turn to idols. And the temple would be seen as God's dwelling place and forget that he dwelled in heaven. And that in all of those instances, they had missed God's plan and rejected it. So that's what Stephen is going to talk about in this message, and I'll try to touch on it briefly as we move through it. So he said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia 
before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from the land, from your land and from your kindred to go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So after Terah, Abraham's father died, Abraham then fully obeyed. As you put it together, that seems like what Stephen is highlighting, that God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia to the promised land, but that there was a delay and that the the delay happened in Haran. And after his father died, then uh, he obeyed. And, you know, I mean, if that happened to Abraham, I think it's important for us to show patience towards one another because this life is a process. And so often we don't obey God perfectly immediately. Sometimes it takes a while and God patiently waited for Abraham to obey his call upon Abraham's life. Even then, God had to do the work. It says there that God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. This is fascinating because we're learning here or being reminded here that Abraham didn't even receive one foot's length of the land for himself. He had to buy a gravesite from Ephron the Hittite when Sarah died in order to bury her. And perhaps it looked to Abraham as if God wasn't working out his promises. But the ways of God are so often not our ways, and God had a longer-term perspective in mind. And God spoke, verse 6, to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. This is a round number describing the time of sojourn which turned into slavery in Egypt. He says in verse 7, But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him, verse 8, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, this was fascinating because this is a progress of revelation. In other words, when Abraham was first called, there was no covenant of circumcision, but later on that developed. And so he's trying to prime the pump for, and later on, Jesus came and the temple was abolished, and now the Holy Spirit lives within your heart if you're a believer. And the patriarchs, verse 9, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And again, this reminds us of Jesus. Joseph, who was one of the sons of Jacob, who became Israel, the youngest son, he was hated by the older brothers because he had these dreams, in addition to the favor that Jacob showed him, these dreams that showed him that he would be a prominent figure over his brothers, over his entire family. And so, in jealousy, they sold him into slavery, where he, after a time in prison, ascended, after interpreting a dream of Pharaoh's, to the right-hand 
position there in Egypt, the second most powerful man in the land. Now, verse 11, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This comes from the latter half of the book of Genesis. It's a a moving account. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph, verse 14, sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So again, much like Christ will appear a second time and reveal himself to the Jewish people, his brothers. So Joseph himself, the second visit, uh, made himself known to his brothers. But verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Now, all of these phrases exposed infants being beautiful in God's sight, that when Moses was exposed, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, brought up as her own son, and instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians, and mighty in words and deeds. All of these have a similarity with the birth and life and early childhood of Jesus. And so again, a parallel is forming. Uh, Exposed at birth, the, the persecution from Herod against all the children there in Bethlehem, being adopted, raised as her own son like Mary did with Jesus, that Moses was instructed and so was Jesus and grew mighty in words and deeds. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature in those early years of his life. When he, verse 23, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, Moses had assumed that they would see him as the future leader of Israel, but it was not the proper time. He was probably here leaning on his own flesh when he was 40 years old, but God had a work of humility in store for Moses. But again, this points us to the second coming of Christ, that in his first coming, Moses was rejected. And in his first coming, Christ was rejected. But in his second coming, he will be received. Now, verse 40, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness 
of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord. This comes from Exodus 3, where God said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. And so at 80 years old, God sent Moses to deliver the people of Israel. Now, I know that Stephen is pointing to the life and the ministry of Jesus But it is so fascinating to consider the segments of a man's life. You have those early years in Moses, and then where at 40 years old he thought he was ready, but he wasn't. God had another 40 years of preparation in Moses' life before at age 80 uh, his most fruitful years would come. And we, we just have no idea what God is preparing and building us for in the years to come. Now this Moses, Stephen said, Verse 35, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So much like Jesus, who was rejected in the first coming, Moses, like Jesus, will be was accepted in his second coming to Israel. And of course, Christ will lead us in a greater exodus than Moses could ever lead his people in. Now, this, verse 37, is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Now, when Stephen quotes from the Old Testament here, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, where Moses predicts that God would send a prophet like, or that God God tells Moses that he would raise up a prophet like Moses from amongst the people of Israel. His words he would put in his mouth, and he'd speak to them all that he would command. And And of course, there are massive similarities between Moses and Jesus. He is that prophet like Moses, rejected at first and embraced at the the second, an intercessor for the people, a bringer of a new covenant. Moses received the covenant of the law. Jesus brought the new covenant by his blood. Our fathers, verse 39, refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led you out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts of sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So again, we see a refusal. As our fathers refused to obey him, same thing, of course, happened with Jesus. And 
He mentions in verse 42 that God gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And this reminds us of the giving over that God does in Romans chapter 1, where in a threefold manner, God will give up a society to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind. And the people of Israel had been given up in that kind of sense to go, to their rebellion against the Lord. And so Stephen goes on to say, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. And our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, again, Stephen is pointing something out. He's saying, look, even in the Old Testament, God said that heaven was was his throne. The earth was was his foothold. How can you actually build me a house as if I will live in a house made with hands? In other words, he's saying, look, you're, you're criticizing me for saying that the temple has been fulfilled and that that era is over with. But God himself has even said that the temple is not the ultimate reality. You, verse 51, stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so he announces, Look, you are resisting the Holy Spirit right now, just like your fathers did. So do you. Abraham tarried in Haran. Joseph was sold by his brothers. Moses was rejected by the Israelites. Israel turned to idols. The temple became seen as the only place that God could live. You were resisting the revelation of God. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen's message is complete at this point, And it says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They weren't broken, but they resisted. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Again, remember Luke's style. He'll mention an important future character very briefly before he does so. And here, before telling Paul's story in chapter 9, here in chapter 7, he mentions that they took their garments and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. That would be Paul later. And as they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This, of course, is very Christ-like of Stephen. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Stephen here, as they're stoning him to death, he's becoming the first martyr in the early church. He's saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, it is cool to see that it isn't considered real death for Stephen. It says that he fell asleep because, as Jesus said, everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Do you, he asked, believe this? And so for us, death is not actually a final state. It's like sleep because we get to go and be with the Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.